God, I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are here with us. Father, I thank you for your word. And God, I thank you, Lord, that you do not require uh, much of us, Father, but our faith and but our hearts. So God, I pray that as we go into your word today, as we read your word in the book of Hebrews, and as we look at your life and the lives of those that have lived for you, Father, I pray that you would plant the seed of faith in our hearts, God. Father, I pray for every single person here that you would ignite a spark in our hearts that will fan into flame a life lived out for you and a passion burning for you, God. So Lord, we open our eyes, we open our ears, and we open our hearts to you, Lord Jesus. Fill our hearts, God. Speak to us today. We love you. We thank you. And in Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. So Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 2 says this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Amen. Amen. So this passage actually comes after Hebrews chapter 11. And just to give you guys some more literary context, Hebrews chapter 11 is basically the hall of faith. That's what a lot of commentators say, kind of just to um, kind of just to define this chapter. And if you read chapter 11, and we won't do that today, but basically it talks about people in history, and it just lists off the giants of the faith in history. And they say this is a hall of faith because each person in the life that they were given lived out faith in Christ, in God, in a very specific way. And so right after this long chapter, it's basically like, it's like baseball cards of the Bible. You know, it's like if you were to like have a collector's collection, like these are like the golden cards. I don't know if you guys have ever collected cards. I never tried. I've always wanted to, but you know, like when we were younger, my parents never bought me cards. But I remember one time my friend gave me a Pokemon card. Like I've only had one Pokemon card in my life and it was Pikachu and I lost it in the wash. But if you can imagine that there is, there is a collection of the most famous, the the spiritual giants of our time, it is listed in Hebrews chapter 11 as the hall of faith. And right after this is the verse that we're reading and it talks about endurance and it, and it is an exhortation to the reader, um, not just to remember these people, not just to look at their lives, but to emulate them. Now, like I said in the beginning, faith is something that can be thrown around so much in, in, in church, in, in religion, that oftentimes we say faith, but how would you actually define faith? And I, I invite you to ask this question to, your, to yourself right now and, and just try to come up with a definition in your mind. You don't have to say it out loud. You don't have to type it, type it but how would you define faith? What does it mean to have faith? Now, for me, as someone that grew up in the church, right, Bread of Life Church of Torrance, California, from a young age, right, I always thought and imagined faith to be like this mysterious substance, you know, this like, this like aura that some people had and some people didn't. 
right? I always thought faith was just like this kind of like this superpower. You know, those shows when some people like they wake up, right? And all of a sudden they discover that they have this superpower in them. And some people had it and some people don't. I talk a lot about missions, going on missions with For Christ. I talk a lot about Pastor Paul Su, the founder of For Christ Mission. And he, like, when you're around him, you get, like, secondhand faith, right? Where you're just like, man, if he can do that, then I can do this, you know? And for him, I'm just like, how does he, like, what? Like, he has this, like, secret sauce, right? Where he can just, like, drive for 12 hours into, like, Panama because he loves Jesus or whatever, and so many times, whether you're on missions or maybe in, even, even in the world, even if you're not in the context of church, a lot of times, depending on who you talk to, faith can have different connotations. And a lot of times in the world, people equate faith as having basically belief, right? Yeah, I have faith, I believe, you know, maybe it's a mustered up, you, you muster up enough willpower, enough trust, enough confidence in one thing. Well, today we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 12 and this passage, these two verses actually highlight three important things on what it means to have faith, to live a life of faith. And I think that these things, rather than just being this mysterious, like aura, superpower, like spider sense that some people have and some people don't, I believe that for every single believer and for every single Christian, it is possible and it is expected to, be a, to have a life of faith. So the first thing, we're going to go over three points. The first thing that we're going to look at, um, if I'm going to read um, verse one once again, it says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So number one, faith is an action. Faith is action. And first, a lot of times we think, you know, rather than thinking faith is just this thing that we muster up, first thing, faith is action. In James, it says faith without works is dead. And the first action, what is the first action that we are called to do in the life of faith? It says to lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Now, I don't know how often you think about faith and sin together, but I believe that faith and sin cannot live together in your heart. I believe that for the believer, faith and sin are the most incompatible roommates ever. I don't know if you guys have ever lived with someone, you know, and if you're in youth, maybe in college, you go into college and you might get a random roommate. I remember like my first year, my first semester of college, I had, you know, they, they sorted me into a random roommate in Texas and my roommate, she's a great, like she's really nice. She's really kind, but her schedule and mine were just flip flop. Like I remember she would start working at like 1am, right? And then she would like leave at 6am and I'd be like, and she'd be working all night and I'd be like, dude, girl, like, what time zone are you in, <laughs> you know, like, what are you doing, right, and there are times where you live with someone, where you inhabit a space, and your lifestyles, your personalities, maybe, maybe your characteristics do not align, and in the same way, in the heart of a believer, faith and sin cannot coexist, and I believe that the first thing that, that, the Bible commands us to do is to lay down our sin. Many times we jump straight 
to like the crazy acts, right? We jump straight to, man, living a life of faith means trying to walk on water like Peter did. Or living a life of faith means trying to pray for that person that's sick, you know, or that might have a broken like ankle. I don't know if you've ever seen those video YouTube videos where people just pray for the sick, you know, on the street, right? And a lot of times we jump straight to that and those are all good. But I believe that before we do that, in our hearts first, Christ calls us to lay down our sin. Why? because we have to understand what sin is. Now, these are kind of like really basic words that you hear, faith, sin, right? But I want us to have a really clear understanding of what these things are. What is sin in our life? And why does it hinder our faith? Why does it say that sin is like a weight that brings us down? Because at the end of the day, what sin is? What defines evil? What defines sin? There's a book that we're going to go through in, uh, in November called Beginning the Journey. And it's like this, like, you know, four or five week book about the basics of faith. I was reading through it. I was like getting blessed, right? <laughs> Self-blessed. And one of the things that, the, that this book rises to understand not just the fruit of sin, but the root of sin. Come on, somebody. You know, and many times we think of sin as just the fruits, the external things that we do, right? Robbing banks, you know? killing elephants, right? I don't know, stealing burgers. I don't know, like whatever it is, we think of sin as these external things. But before that, sin has a root. And when we look at Genesis, I just want to take a pause and look at the book of Genesis. At the end of the day, what I believe sin is defined at, as is what evil defines is defined as, I'm sorry, what it defines evil is using something for which it was not designed to do. That's essentially what abuse is. That is where the evil comes in, is when we use something for a purpose that it was not designed. That is where broken relationships come, where people become abused and used for someone else's will rather than for their own good. That is when we abuse power, where power is used not to lead and to empower, but to feed the heart of the leader. That is when we abuse money, you know, where money is stolen, is used for something for which it was not purposed to do. And that's what we see in the Garden of Eden. You see, when you look at the fall of man, right, what happens in the Garden of Eden? Adam and Eve, they're, they're made together in the image of God. They were purpose, they were designed, and this is what we are designed to do. God said, let us make man in our image, and he says to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over all the creatures. What does that mean? We were made for communion, community, intimacy. We were made for work and productivity, and we were made for authority and victory. But what happened in the fall of man, and, and excuse me, as I'm taking kind of this tangent into the book of Genesis, is that the snake, a serpent, a created thing, begins to tell Eve to eat this apple. And Eve, rather than having dominion over the serpent, because she has the authority, she submitted to it. And the serpent, in his deception, he says, you will be like God. And Eve forgets that she was already made in the image of God. And so the reason why the writer calls us to lay down the sin 
is because at the core of it, our hearts to live a life of faith is what we were designed to do. We were designed to live out our purpose. And in order to live out what we were made to do, the purposes and the callings and the victory that God has in our lives, there is no space for deception. There are no space for substitutes. Essentially, what happened in the Garden of Eden was that the serpent deceived Eve into thinking that she would gain something that she already had. And what happened is with Adam and Eve, you know, when Adam, like when God asked him, like, what happened? You know, and then he's like, that woman, you know, and he separates himself from her. He abandons her. That relationship is broken. What the Bible is saying is not just, you know, give me all your sins so you can be holy. But many times, and even for me as a Christian, I would often think like the altar was like a goodwill, okay? If I'm honest with you guys, I would treat the altar like a goodwill. Like God just wants our crap right? Isn't that what, like, I don't know if any of you guys felt this way, or maybe it's just me, but I was always feel like, man, give your sins to God, give all of these things to God, and I'm like, it felt like God just wants, like, us to give and give and give, but did you know that the altar is not a goodwill? The altar is not a donation bank for the Lord, but the altar is a place where you exchange your sin so that you can receive what the purposes that God has designed you to have. Many times we think that to lay down our sins means to lay down something that is so heavy and so burdensome. But in reality, repentance is not a heavy thing. Yes, we are called to grieve and to take responsibility for our actions. But repentance at the end of the day is marked by joy because we can exchange our sin for something much greater. And to understand that faith it's not just a, <clears throat> it's not just a good idea. <clears throat> Excuse me. Faith is not just something that we can or can't do, but in order to live out the purposes and the callings that God has designed us to live, we must have a life of faith. We were designed for faith. We were designed to live with victory. We were designed to live in healing. We were designed to live overcoming evil and abuse and pain in our lives. And we're designed to live in faith, not just as something we have, but as something that we do. The second point, as we go on, and it says this, um, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. The second point is faith is a position. And what this writer basically is saying right here is looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And this is actually what dif differentiates faith from just belief in the world. This is what differentiates faith from delusion. Because a lot of times you're like, well, faith, you know, what is faith, right? I can have faith in this, like, in this table. I can have faith in, like, you know, this animal, this cow. You know, I can have faith in so many different things. But I believe that faith can only be possible with a divine encounter with Christ. Faith begins with Christ and it ends with Christ. Faith cannot happen apart from Christ. And more specifically, faith is what happens when Jesus becomes first and you become second in your life. A life of faith, it says, looking to Jesus, the founder, meaning the beginning, meaning he created it, meaning he established it, meaning he's the first one. You know, he's like the OG of the OGs. Like he's the one that began our faith. He laid out example for us and the perfecter of our faith, meaning he's also the one that will finish it. 
He's not just the one that started it, but he is the beginning and the end. And I really believe that in our lives, in order to live a life of faith, Jesus must be the beginning of our faith. And this is also, this, for many of us, this is our salvation. This is our testimony. It's that more than just having faith, more than just mustering something up, because many times we think, just have faith, right? I don't know if you've ever been told that before in your life, right? I've, I've told this to a lot of people, you know, have faith, right? And, I, and I've received this as well. You know, just, just have faith, just trust in the Lord. And yes, there is an action that we must do. But before we can muster up faith in ourselves, it must begin with an encounter with Christ. And I want to ask each one of you guys, if you are a Christian, if you are a genuinely saved believer, then you have faith because you've had an encounter with Christ. And maybe for some of you, and I don't know if this is for any of you, but if there's, there are people who have come to church, but there's no faith in your life, then I would lovingly ask you to consider, are you really saved? Have you ever really had an encounter with Jesus? Because the mark of a is faith. The mark of a Christian, a genuine Christian, is real faith in our lives. The mark of a believer is simply the things that you do. It's not just the word say, but it's the fact that Jesus is first in your life. Is first in your life. And um, um, I believe that, and for many of us, you know, there, there comes a time where, where with, with every season, with every transition, there's a question you put Christ first or will you put your own self-preservation first? You know, I got so blessed this week because on Instagram, um, Pastor Paul Suh, he's he started posting all these like videos of Latin America last year, the mission trip. And I don't know if, uh, if you guys don't know him, he's the founder of For Christ Mission. And many of our EM members, actually our staff, um, you know, Nathan and Karen, they went on this mission trip, Alice too, I believe. They, they went on this mission trip last year to Panama and he's posting all these like recaps. It's like those glamour shops where people are like crying on the mission trip, except Pastor Paul's recording it and they're praying, right? I don't know why, I didn't even go on this trip, right? I don't even know how the team, right? But I got so blessed hearing their prayers i got so i got like personally like really like i felt like i was like oh i missed that i missed that time you know even though i wasn't even there like i wasn't even on the team or anything but i got so blessed hearing their prayers because the one thing that rang consistent i you know there's a prayer that our brother nathan sub prayed and i got so blessed by it i think some of you guys might have seen it but essentially that prayer is god i want to put you first in everything i want to put you first it's not just, God, I want you sometimes in my life, but God, I want you in everything. I want to put you before my school. I want to put you before my work. I want to put you before my family. Why? Because Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith. In Psalm chapter 84, verse 10, it says, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked Christian. If you know that you are in Christ, even your worst day, even your lowest moment in Christ is better than the highest thing you could achieve in the world without him. And I think I've shared this before, but so pardon me if you're hearing this again, but in high school, I loved musical theater, right? And uh, I'm really bad at it. But I remember like, I loved it so much where I would audition for the musicals and I would audition for the plays, right? And the highest like 
role I ever got was course member number five, right? So I have, I still have like the DVDs for when I, my old musicals and things like that. But I used to be, if you see, if you see like these old tapings, I'm like that, like everyone's in the front, there's light, there's cam, you know, there's cameras and all these things. And I'm one person that corner, just like, just grooving it out, you know, like course member number five, never got a line or anything like that. And I remember, like, for me, as a as someone that always felt like I was the last pick sometimes, you know, in, in musical theater or in sports or whatever, when I became a Christian, it was like, wow, God calls us to be chorus member number fives in the kingdom of God. And in the same way, he calls us not, so, not to demote us, but to actually exchange our positions in the world for a place in the kingdom of God that in a life of faith, it must begin and it must end, it must surround the person of Jesus Christ. And the last thing, um, as we go kind of finish out this verse, in verse two, it says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The last point, faith is perspective. Faith is its perspective. Now, this, this section of the passage essentially lists out the suffering that Jesus went through for us on the cross. He said, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And I'm sure many of us have also heard before that in order to be a Christian, you must give everything. You must be willing to suffer. When I was in Texas, my church had one model, motto. My senior pastor had one motto. It was give, suffer, and die. Like that was the theme, the anthem of our church. We had it on t-shirts, right? We had it like in every event. Like that was like, you know, and that kind of became like, you know, like the joke, but that's like my, my pastor was really serious. He's like, the one thing you have to know about this church if you want to be a part of it you must give suffer and die right and I was like amen pastor you know but he said that I believe and when you hear stuff like that I know that it is much more than just because we're a Christian masochist right and many times we think that we we have this perspective it's just like man you just must die to yourself, kill yourself, beat your body, and die. And yes, that is true, but that's not because we just like suffering. It's not because we just, <laughs> yeah, it's not just because we just like like going through pain, right? If anyone knows me, they know I am the couch potato of potatoes, right? If I could, like, if I could be something, I would be a potato. Like, I love comfort. I love just being still, taking naps. But the reason why you see believers, you see pastors, you see churches center their hearts around suffering for Christ is not because we like suffering, but because there is a joy that is much greater, that is much more worthy than any suffering we can receive on the earth. And so faith is not just something that you muster up, but it's having the perspective of eternity. It's saying, man, I see what is ahead of me right now. I see my circumstances right now. I see the condition of our nation right now. But much more than that, I see eternity. I see the promises that God has given us. I see heaven coming. I see Christ redeeming all things for his glory. I believe that the Christian life is the ultimate 
marshmallow test. Okay, excuse me if this is cheesy, right? I'm sure many of us, we've heard this marshmallow test, you know, where the kid, like they get one marshmallow and if they wait, you know, like 10 minutes or something, they'll get two marshmallows. The, the same thing for the Christian, except in exchange for one marshmallow, we get a whole vault of gold and eternal blessings for the temporary life that we are living right now. Faith is not just something that you can muster up on your own, but faith is having perspective into saying that everything that we go through in our life, when we do it for Christ, there is a joy that is before us. I believe that the Christian that suffers is not the depressed Christian. The Christian that suffers is the joyful one. I believe that the Christian that is willing to suffer is the one that has the most hope, is the one that knows that there is a coming joy, maybe not in this life, maybe not in our timeline, but for eternity that knows that we are made not just for 60, 70, 80 years on this earth, but we were made for eternity. We were made to long outlast our life on this earth, that we want more than just a good life. We want more than just a good 70 or 80 years, but we want a good eternity. Come on, somebody. We want more than just a seasonal thing. We want more than just meeting Christ in our youth or at a retreat or in college, but we want to meet Christ in our workplace. We want to meet Christ as parents. We want to meet Christ as grandparents. We want to meet Christ on our deathbed, and we want to meet Christ as we are entering from this earth into eternity. We want to welcome Christ with hope and expectation to say that it is for you that I have lived these 70 or 80 years that this is nothing compared to eternity with Christ. And the great thing is that Christ does not only call us to suffer and to give everything, although that is true, but he calls us because he is better than everything. He calls us, he only calls us to give everything because he knows that he is better, he is sweeter, he is greater, he has more victory than anything you could get on this earth. I love the word that I think Alice shared a couple of weeks ago to our Friday house church, that God is worth it, right? That yes, it's hard, yes, it's difficult, yes, we must give it all, but it is an exchange for something so much greater, so much more worthy. And the beautiful thing about Christ, right? In, uh, in, in high school, even in, in college, right? There's this, I don't know if there's this phrase that you guys hear, but there's a phrase that I heard here and there, just like, you don't want to peak too early, right? Like you don't want high school essentially to be the height of your life, you know? And then when I went to college, a lot of people were like, man, you know, you better enjoy your college years. These are going to be the best years of your life, you know? And like, these are often coming from kind of more disgruntled, like older people who maybe graduated. They're like, man, college is going to be the best years of your life. I remember when I was going into high school, college, right? I was talking with someone, like a friend of a friend who was like 10 years older than me. And she was like, dude, enjoy it now because you're not going to get any prettier than this. <laughs> she was like, you're just, this is, this is, this is the peak. This is the best that it's going to get. Things are just going to get harder. You're going to get wrinkles. You know, you're going to like get gray hair. Like, I was like, oh, shoot. Like, I'm 18. <laughs> like, chill out, you know. But I remember, like, that was this phrase that was kind of drifting around in high school and college. Like, you know, like, um, you know, like, these are the best years of a, <laughs> yes, amen. Possible getting more beautiful. You know, things are best to come. But that is, that is a mentality that has kind of seeped into our world. 
And many times, even the things, even the trends that come, even the things that we receive, it is the best in the beginning. You know, we want fresh bread from 85 degrees, you know, the ones that are fresh out of the oven, right? Because only with time it gets stale, right? <laughs> brioche, that brioche stops becoming brioche. It starts becoming more like a brick, right? We want fresh bread. We want the, the latest news, you know, that marble berry tail, marble taro, whatever it is, whatever you like, right? We don't want that stale bread. We don't want that stale boba. We don't want, you know, stale food. And even, even in terms of trends, even in terms of things in our lives, we want the, the things that are best experienced in the world are experienced fresh, you know? And there's this understanding with time, our clothes wither, you know? wrinkles come, right? Thankfully, we're all beautiful. I think we're all beautiful, all right? But, you know, with life, there's, that's why the beauty industry has so much money. It's because it's this sense of preserving what we had in the beginning, preserving our beauty because it fades, preserving our food, preserving all of these things. But in Christ, the best is yet to come. In Christ, in the world, things start sweet and become bitter. Things start fresh and become stale. Things start new and become old news. But in Christ, the bitter, the ugly, the broken become sweet with time. In Christ, things start good and end in glory. Things, start, things that start with Christ end with an ever-increasing glory. Jesus Christ is the only one that takes what we have right now and says all the great and all the bad, all like the best and the worst and everything in between in me, the best is still yet to come. Show Christ the worst that you have in the world, the lowest moment. And he says, I can make sweet honey out of your bitter water. Show Christ the best that you have in the world. Show Christ your greatest accomplishments your greatest achievements, the greatest money. And he says, I can even do better than that. Jesus is better. And faith, a life of faith, simply more than just something you can muster. It's simply having the perspective of eternity. It's simply recognizing, yes, I know that the reality of what I see right now may seem big, but more real than my circumstances more real than what I see in my day-to-day -day is the presence of God for eternity. More real than what I can physically touch and feel and smell. More real than that is a spiritual truth that is waiting for those that will endure. Not just for a season, not just for a period of time, but those that will endure until the very end to know that these few years we have on this earth, we were made for much more than that. Now, we're not just made to wither away, all right? I don't care what that person said, all right? I was made for just my beauty on this earth. I will outlast my 70 years or however long, but I'm made for eternity to be with my Savior. I was made for eternity to be with Christ. I was made because Jesus calls me to give everything only because he is so much better than everything. He is so much greater. He is so much sweeter. And so that's my simple encouragement to you guys today. I think in this season, there is a call to endure, yes. There is a call to give, yes. There is a call to suffer, yes. But all of these things fall under the call to live in faith.
that if you are a believer, if you have met Jesus, you have all that you need. That faith is not something you have to muster up in your own. It's not something that you can just grind it out, you know? But faith simply is an action. Faith simply is a position. And faith begins with a perspective of knowing Christ, of seeing eternity. If you begin in seeing eternity, if you begin in understanding that we were made for heaven, that we were made for an eternal life, then he will begin, we will begin to position ourselves so that Christ becomes first and we become second. And as we position ourselves in this way, as we understand our eyes, our minds are fixed on Christ, as we position ourselves through that, then we'll be able to walk in faith. Then laying aside every weight, laying down our sins will become not about our sins, but about the Jesus that we are running to. Will be about the person that we are pursuing in this life. Will be about even in our weaknesses, even when we fail and even when we struggle, there is a promise for those that will endure. 